All right, we are continuing in our study of the book, the sermon letter to the Hebrews this morning. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to chapter 13. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, I think, if I've done this right, you should be able to find that on page 1286, Uh, but it's Hebrews chapter 13. Now, as you're turning there, obviously we're almost to the very end of the book. Uh, we're, We're about to the end here, circling for a landing uh, so I wanted to, to give you kind of a heads up. I think, I expect, Lord willing, that we'll finish Hebrews next Sunday, and I wanted to give you kind of a heads up of where we're going after that, what to expect following uh, our finishing up with Hebrews. My, and my expectation, my hope, my plan, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? But my plan uh, is to finish Hebrews next week, and then the week after that to have one sermon just not a part of a series, and then to start a series on the book of Ecclesiastes the week after that. Uh, So we'll be looking through Ecclesiastes. Now, given the general unfamiliarity with that book, uh, it's it's not typically in the top ten most read books in the Bible, if I can put it that way, right? Uh, I would encourage you, if you have time, I would encourage you to spend the next couple, three weeks reading Ecclesiastes in large chunks if you can, uh, to get a sense of the whole book, to begin to familiarize yourself with what we will see when we start digging into it. And again, that we've, we've got two weeks at least, so I, we've got 14 days to go through the 12 chapters, so there should be enough time uh, if you give it even a little bit of time. And if you don't have time, that's fine. But I encourage you to spend some time thinking about God's Word to us from Ecclesiastes before we get started. I have ordered, just so you know, I've ordered uh, some Uh, individual copies of just the book of Ecclesiastes with lots of room for notes. Those will be here, Lord willing, this week. Uh, If you're interested in one of those, I'll I'll have them next Sunday, I hope, Uh, and that can be a way to kind of keep notes and keep your own thoughts as you work through the book. Uh, So I encourage you to take advantage of that. But that's for the future. For this week, uh, we are digging into uh, the next section of Hebrews. As always, when we open God's Word, we need His Spirit to be present with us to speak His truth into us and to restrain our sin. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray and remain standing as I read from Hebrews 13. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You reveal Yourself to us in it. And yet, Lord Jesus, our sin blinds us. As I was talking to the kids, our sin deafens us to your footsteps, to your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit active among us, that you would restrain our sin. Open our eyes and our ears that we would see and hear your word, your truth to us today. Encourage our hearts. Restrain our sin that we would faithfully apply your truth. May your name be praised, not mine. May your grace be seen clearly, not my intellect or language or whatever. May you receive all the glory this morning. We pray it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, we're going to be focused on verses 17 to 19, but I'm actually going to read just starting in verse 1 because it's all of a piece. So I want want us to have the context. This is God's Word. Let brotherly love abide or continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. 
Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the camp, outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. that we be sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Recently, I have been reading the book on which the film Greyhound is based. That came out a few years ago. Uh, if you're not familiar with the movie, in, in it, Tom Hanks's character, Tom Hanks plays the, the captain of a U.S. destroyer uh, who is also the commanding officer of a four-ship escort of a 37-ship convoy in the middle of 1942, crossing the Atlantic at the height of the Battle of the Atlantic. Uh, the story focuses, and, and it's, it's a pretty thick book and a long movie, and it focuses on a three-day period um, where this convoy is crossing uh, an area called the Mid-Atlantic Gap. It's a, a region of the ocean there, roughly this equidistant from Nova Scotia and Greenland and Iceland and Ireland, kind of that area where it's just far enough away from all of them that they don't have air cover. So they're much more at risk. And in this three-day period, if you've uh, seen the movie, uh, the, 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 they're subjected to relentless attacks from a, a U-boat wolf pack, they're called. Uh, and along the way, the U-bo- U-boats end up sinking several of the ships of the convoy and even one of the accompanying escorts. In turn, the escorts also sink a number of the U-boats. A constant action for three solid days. The majority of the convoy, though, makes it through, delivering essential troops and supplies to the the British Isles there and the war effort. Now, if you've seen the movie, the intensity of the combat is just unrelenting. It's exhausting to watch the movie, never mind imagining experiencing the events. 
Hanks' character, Tom Hanks' character, on the, is on the bridge of this ship for the entire three-day period. Near constant running battle, just one piece after another after another, and, and kind of a recurring motif in the film is his inability to get food. He keeps thinking, okay, here's a, here's a calm spot. I'll order a sandwich or I'll, I'll order a, a cup of coffee, bucket of coffee, whatever. By the time it gets there, something else will come. And just one thing after another, the sandwich gets soaked with seawater as he runs out to observe from the bridge wing or, you know, it immediately hits the floor as something happens and he has to respond immediately. It's just this con- constant, unrelenting attack. In a poignant scene towards the end of the movie, he changes his boots or slippers because his feet <coughs> excuse me because his feet are bloodied by standing the watch standing on deck for such a long period of time without any relief the title of the book now i said the, the name of the movie is greyhound but the title of the book on which the movie is based is the good shepherd and the title points us to the spiritual symbolism of the story. Hanks' character, the captain in there, especially if you read the book, he is clearly a committed Christian. He, in, in the book especially, recites to himself passage after passage of Scripture, identifying the world that he's experiencing by these memorized passages of Scripture. He, he's, his understanding of the world is wholly shaped by, these, by the Scripture. And throughout the battle, he is shown, you know, at different points, praying at his bedside. He has a prominent painting sticker, whatever, of Hebrews 13.8 in his cabin. The author of the book, C.S. Forrester, must have realized clearly that convoy escort duty is a good parallel for the work of Christian ministry. Whether elders or pastors or Bible teachers or deacons or parents, leaders in God's church, are called to protect the flock that God has entrusted to them from the attacks of the enemy and to ensure to the best of their ability as much as they can that their charges reach the destination safely. Now, our passage this morning, maybe obviously, is about leadership and about obedience to leadership. And I'll be honest, I really struggled this week uh, figuring out how to preach this rightly. On a personal level, this feels awfully self-serving for me as one of your elders, one of your leaders, to stand up here and say, thus saith the Lord, you must obey me. More than that, though, this precise message has absolutely been weaponized by wolves in shepherd's clothing to allow wicked, conscienceless narcissistic sometimes men to prey on local congregations and even broader regional groups of churches in the name of God, to use the name of God as cover and use this message as cover for their own sinful depredations. Indeed, this is a core emphasis of pretty much every cult group ever. So I'm uncomfortable this morning, to say the least. And yet, this message is precisely what I have no choice but to teach. Since in preaching, I must submit to the will of God and to the Word of God at least as much as all of us are required to do in our workaday lives. I don't get to decide which parts I'm going to preach and which parts I'm not. I don't get to skip passages because I don't like them or am not comfortable with them. 
God's Word is good, even when it makes us uncomfortable, even if it has been abused by wicked men in the past. So, this morning we're going to talk about what the Lord's vision for leadership is and what it is not, and hopefully get a better picture of it than what we typically see in the world around us. Now first, as you may remember, context is king. This chapter of Hebrews is very much aimed toward, as as you'll remember from the, the, the last several weeks, it's aimed toward a single goal, encouraging these believers, this local congregation, encouraging them to stand firm, to endure in the face of stiff and increasing persecution. And this exhortation is aimed directly at that goal. This These couple of verses are part of that exhortation toward the goal, just as the encouragement to all the different permutations of brotherly love that we've already looked at, that he's already touched on. So this as well is a way for us to demonstrate practical love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we lean into this command, we are all the more deeply encouraged to press on despite external circumstances. The command in this passage to obey your leaders is of a piece with the command to let brotherly love abide or continue. This is another way both to give encouragement and to be strengthened to resist the attacks of the evil one. But does that mean that we are called to mindless, slavish obedience? Just do whatever I say without question. Of course not. Obviously not. The Lord nowhere calls you to lay your brain aside. And you are called to obey Christ above all else, regardless. Paul says that if anyone, including even himself, including even angels from heaven, if anyone is to teach a different gospel than the one that they had already received, that they were to be rejected immediately. Christians are not only not required to obey the new message, they are conscience-bound not to obey, inasmuch as it contradicts the gospel which they had already been taught and believed. If I tell you to do that which is contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture, you have a duty and a command before your Lord and God to reject my teaching out of hand. Here's the principle in play. The authority of leaders in the church, elders and deacons in particular, the authority of leaders in the church is only ministerial and declarative. That's a quote from our our Constitution, the PCA's Constitution, the Book of Church Order. The authority of leaders in the church is only ministerial and declarative. Now, that's a sharp contrast to, for example, uh, the Roman Catholic position that the hierarchy of priests, starting from the lowest local priest all the way up to the Pope, culminating in the Pope, has the authority to make new laws to speak new commands that are then incumbent on all believers to obey. If that seems a little familiar, it's less well, less clearly articulated in the LDS hierarchy, but it is no less held to. The leadership, especially at the top, claims the authority to make new laws on behalf of God, binding the consciences of all under them. Scripturally speaking, though, 
I am not a king. I am a steward. I am not the one with authority. I am the one under authority. The sum total of my authority is to say, your Lord has said to you, quote, and then tell you what he said. To declare to you what the Lord has already said. That's it. I don't get to make new laws and I don't get to nullify the existing commands of the king. I can only declare what he has said and done. If I stray from the revealed will of the Lord, right here, if I stray from that, then not only are you not required to obey and submit to that, you are positively required to reject it. As leaders, and though this is speaking specifically about leadership in the church body, it applies outside as well. As leaders, most of us hold some form of God-given leadership role in the home or the workplace. As leaders, there are a couple of things that we have to be reminded of regularly. My call from God is not to form people into little copies of myself. Much as I think that I'm a pretty good person, I don't want you to look like me. Rather, the elders are shepherding or stewarding those entrusted to our care to look specifically like Christ, to point you to Him, not to me. If you're looking to me as your example, you, I, got, I got some bad news for you. We are specifically called to keep watch over your souls. A steward or a shepherd, like a guard or a watchman in the military, we may not do whatever we please. I must guard what has been given to me to guard. Such a watchman must ensure not just their protection from attack, certainly, but also their positive health and well-being. The shepherd certainly defends against wolves and lions and you know, animals that would come and eat the sheep, of course, uh, but also leads the flock to find good pasture and quiet waters. He pays attention to their health. If there is an illness, he cares for it himself, or if it's beyond him, he sends for the vet. In the same way in the church, the elders are to be on guard against false teachers and pernicious doctrines worming their way in. But the more constant duty, and frankly the most effective means of combating those false teachings, the constant duty is to lead the people of God to the meat and strong drink of God's Word. To bring them to the table of the Lord where they can feast on His grace in His body. To lead them in conversation with the Lord Himself in prayer. And to encourage you, His children, to be engaged in word, in the study of the Word and in prayer on your own. This is how we are primarily called to keep watch over your souls. And in that, as verse 17 points out, we will have to give an account. There will come a day when I will stand before the Lord... And he will require of me an account of my keeping of your soul. And if you think that doesn't terrify me, you're crazy. There will come a day when I will stand before the Lord and he will require an account of me. Just like the stewards in the parable, Jesus entrusts you, the congregation, to your elders. 
on the understanding that He will know, He will want to know how we have cared for you, that there will come a day when He will demand that accounts be balanced and how have you cared for this talent in the parable, this congregation in life, how, will, how have you cared for this, my people, that I entrusted to your care? How have we cared for you and encouraged your growth in Christ-likeness? But in addition to that final account, there are regular accounts that your elders make of you to the Lord. What do I mean? When you are healthy and growing well, becoming more and more like Him, wrestling with your sin and subduing it, when you're stretching your faith to pursue faithfulness in tangible ways in your life, we rejoice before the Lord and beg Him for greater growth. When you are struggling with your sin or worse, not struggling with your sin, when you are uninterested in growth, just going through the motions, when you are actively opposed to the things of God and the call of faithfulness in your own lives, we grieve before Him over you in prayer and we beg Him to draw you to Himself to correct your sin and hard-heartedness. We give an account not merely at the end of days, though that is certainly true, but regularly we bring you before Him to give an account of where you are currently as best we can in prayer. The core principle of authority in the church is that it is fundamentally service, not rule. Service to you and through you service to the Lord. I am not the Lord's anointed. I am not a king, still less am I the Christ. I am not the Lord's anointed. I serve the Lord's anointed. It is the God-given duty of those who are in leadership to humbly serve those given to our care, whether that is elders in the church or employees that you supervise or your children or whatever. Leadership under Christ is not rule but service. Just as Jesus washed the disciples' feet and called them to do the same. And remember, the washing of feet was the job generally reserved for the lowest slave on the, the hierarchy, the one who could not get out of it because anybody who could get out of it was going to try to get out of it because it was gross. Jesus, our Lord, washed the disciples' feet. Just as He washed their feet, so we are to serve humbly in whatever way He calls us to serve, to give ourselves heart, mind, and body for their care. We're not very good at that because we're sinners too. But that's the call. That is our calling as leaders. Now, I focused on the call to leaders first. Because all that Jesus taught and commanded about leadership in the church is the assumed background to this command to the non-leaders, to those who are led. Part of my watching over your souls is ensuring that you know what true Christian leadership looks like so that if one comes along who wants to claim the mantle of Christian leadership, who is one of those wicked, conscienceless, narcissistic, abusive people, that you will recognize it and reject it immediately. Those who would claim the name of Christ to eat his flock are evil, period. No matter how much they use the right language, we need to be on guard against them. But I focused on all of that 
Because the right leadership in the church is the assumed background to this command to the led, to the congregation. When such true leadership, to which we sinful humans aspire but rarely arrive at, when such true leadership is clearly being pursued, obedience and submission become drastically easier. Right? If you know that your leaders love you and weep over you in prayer and care deeply for your souls, it is so much easier to receive challenging words from them well, in humility, in submission, in obedience. The command in this passage is not to leaders, but to those who are led, obey your leaders and submit to them. So what does that look like? What does it look like to obey and submit? In our culture, in this historical moment, most of the time, we in a single local congregation tend to agree on most things. Because there are other churches nearby. And if you have a substantive disagreement with this local body, you can probably find another local body five minutes down the road with which you'll agree better. That's just the reality of the world in which we live, right? There, there have been plenty of times in history when that wasn't true, but that's where we are right now, and I think we need to acknowledge that. There, there are certainly some aspects of that that are beneficial, but there are others that are deeply unhelpful. One result of that reality is that our general agreement most of the time, uh, and because of that general agreement, we don't really know how to handle disagreement well. We don't know what to do with it because we encounter it so rarely. Where am I going with this? Submission can, that only happens when you agree is not submission, it's agreement. Submission that only happens when you agree is not submission, it's agreement. If I only submit to my leadership when I agree with their decisions, then I am fun fundamentally not in submission. I'm just sitting beside them saying, yep, I agree with that, nope, I don't agree with that, and I'm going to go my own way. Where the rubber meets the road is when there is a disagreement. And so we have to talk about how you evaluate such disagreements. I said earlier that we're not called to mindless slavish obedience simply because a leader demands something or teaches something. We are rather called to emulate, and you will probably anticipate this, emulate the Bereans, right? You remember the story. Paul and those with him came to the city of Berea, preached the gospel, taught as was their pattern, and the believers in that city, uh, in Berea, neither rejected the new teaching out of hand simply because it was new, which is, if you read Acts, a pretty common response, nor did they accept it simply because it was new and different. What did they do? They listened carefully, and then they searched God's Word to see if this new message, this new teaching from Paul, was actually aligned with what God had revealed, because God doesn't change. When they found that it did align, they joyfully received it. We have to assume that had it not been found in line with God's Word, they would have rejected it just as quickly. When you encounter a difficult teaching, either because it's new to you or because it calls you to do something that you don't want to do or to repent of something that you really would kind of like to do, when you encounter a difficult teaching, 
You hold it up to the light of God's Word. If it is clearly in line with God's revelation, then you must submit to it, period. If it is not in line with God's revelation, then you must reject it, period. And wouldn't it be nice if those were the only two options? The problem, of course, comes in that there isn't a sharp, clear dividing line between those two options. They certainly exist, but there's a whole area in the middle where it's kind of fuzzy and gray and hard to understand because we're sinful and don't understand. And the Bible doesn't speak to everything. Does the Bible say that you should be on Twitter or Facebook? I mean, there's some wisdom that we could apply to that situation, but Facebook and Twitter are not mentioned anywhere in the pages of Scripture. When we encounter this larger portion in the middle zone, neither clearly in line with nor clearly against God's Word, what we do then, what, what do we do then? This is what we sometimes call a wisdom issue, one in which we need to apply the full wisdom of what God has revealed to us in His Word and the intelligence that He has given us to discern where to land, joined primarily with a deep, and this is key, a deep abiding humility that recognizes that I don't have all the wisdom there is, I don't have all the intellect there is, I need to learn from others. And particularly from those whom God has called as my leaders. And I emphasize that for a reason. It's tempting to go looking for a leader in the church somewhere who is a great preacher, which I'm not, who is a phenomenal teacher, who is able to exegete and draw huge crowds, and let's go where the crowds are. There's a temptation to that, but those people, however truthful and valuable that may be, aren't your leaders. They are not given care of you specifically in this flock. They don't know your name. You listen to somebody online, you may gather a lot from it, but they don't know you. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It's fine to listen to preachers online. That's great. Feel free. I encourage you to do so. But recognize that there's a substantive difference between hearing a sermon online and hearing a sermon from your congregational leader. Hearing a word of encouragement even in the conversations that we have after the service or before the service or in Sunday school or during the week or whatever, a conversation from your specific leader. You are called to obey and submit to your leaders, not to all leaders. Does that make sense? There's, there is a distinction there. But we do this we, we approach these difficult circumstances, these difficult questions where we're in the gray area with a deep and abiding humility. Pursue the best understanding that you can from God, God's Word and then start to ask some questions. First, how clearly does Scripture talk about this, whatever this is? For example, if we're talking about justification by faith, by faith alone, which is an utterly core doctrine and clear throughout the Scripture. It's everywhere. We need to be much more firm uh, uh, in, in our rejection or acceptance based on that scriptural teaching. If somebody denies justification by faith alone, do not walk away, run away. Give it no time, no dallying at all. On the other hand, for example, if we're talking about 
the timing of the future millennium in the end times, let's be honest, I'm going to be a lot less firm or quick to reject the teaching because the Scripture is a lot less clear. The Scripture doesn't give us a clear answer. Now, I have an opinion. I know what I think, and it's good to understand what you think and what, scripture, what you believe Scripture teaches and what your church teaches. But I hold that opinion much more loosely because Scripture is less clear about that. So the, quest, the first question is, how clearly does Scripture teach about this area of disagreement? The harder issue, the one that we usually get tripped up on, comes in areas of practical application, application of scriptural principles. For example, I hope we all agree that Scripture forbids bearing false witness, that it says that bearing false witness, lying, speaking untruth, is sinful. We all agree on that, I hope. Please tell me we all agree on that. But how do we apply that scriptural principle in our everyday lives? That gets more difficult. How does that principle apply to our in-person behavior? How does it apply to our online behavior? How does it apply to our political activity, to our work life? What do you do when you get pushback on, when you disagree with the teaching in those areas? In the practical application of that principle. These are the types of questions that that leaders most often get pushback on, that most often get questions about when the These are the areas that we most need to learn to obey and submit. We mostly agree on the principles, and that's good. We should. But application starts to engage our, my particular sins. Starts to require that we acknowledge that we have been sinful, not generally. It's easy to admit that we've been sinful generally, right? I am a sinner. I don't want to talk about specific sins, but I am a sinner generally. Once we start talking about specific sins, repent of this activity, repent of this speech, of this uh, uh, thought process. Once we start talking about specific sins, it gets a lot harder. It's a lot harder. That's uncomfortable. But that discomfort is precisely because that's where we most need someone else to correct us. If you are attending a church where truth is being proclaimed faithfully, and I pray and hope that this is such a one, you will be corrected in your thinking or actions or or, uh, desires at some point. It's going to happen. If the Bible is being clearly proclaimed, you who are not Jesus will be corrected by Scripture, and it won't be comfortable because we don't like to admit that. Like the Bereans, it's certainly appropriate to respond to such corruption by searching the Scriptures, seeing if God's Word does, in fact, teach that correction. But at the end of the day, we must recognize that we will need to submit to the correction of our desires, our thinking, and our actions, as long as it is in line with God's Word, and that ain't going to be fun. That's where the rubber meets the road. And this is where this passage really engages. When you are corrected, either individually and personally or just more generally, when you are corrected, you are called to obey and submit. The more you obey and dig in and learn to uh, learn and come to love such correction, 
the greater the joy your leaders will take in stewarding you. The more you reject, the more you kick against the goads, the more you fight against that correction, the less joy your leaders will have in their stewardship of you. One of those is to your great benefit. The other may still be faithful stewardship, but it is of drastically less benefit to you. The author here clearly says it would be no advantage to you for your leaders to steward you, to watch over you with groaning and grief. If your leaders find themselves groaning at the thought of leading you, that will necessarily be to your detriment, even especially if you end up getting what you want. If you resist so strongly the correction from the Bible that your leaders have given to you, that they give up and walk away, you have left yourself without a shepherd. That is not to your benefit. But how do we get there? How do we get to the place where we delight in being led, in being corrected even? How do we get there? To get to that place, loving the leadership and even the correction that God puts in our lives starts with prayer. Pray for me. Pray for the session, the elders together. Pray for the deacons. Pray for the faithfulness. Pray for our wisdom. Pray for God to be active in and through us. Pray that the Lord, through His Spirit, through His Son, through His grace, would work in me that I would repent that I would humbly serve, not seek to demand or control. Pray for, your, for those who are leading Bible studies. Pray for your parents and your supervisors and on and on and on. Pray for our faithfulness. Pray for our wisdom. Pray for the grace of God to be poured out on us because we desperately need it. We are not in ourselves equal to this task. God calls those who are weak and broken so that His grace and glory will shine through them more clearly. So pray for us. The author in verse 18 specifically asks prayer that we, the leaders, would have a clear conscience and that we would act honorably in all things. I beg you, I beg you, pray for me and Kelly and Roy for exactly those things. Pray that we would have a clear conscience in our pursuit of leading you, of shepherding you, of stewarding you. Pray that we would be faithful, that we would act honorably in all things, that the Lord would lead us and through us lead you. And as you pray for us in that way, you will likely find greater joy as we submit to Him. As we submit to Him, you will find greater joy in submitting to the Lord through our stewardship. As you pray for us to be enabled by His grace to serve you, you will find yourself likewise being enabled by His grace to serve each other and to serve us. For this is the primary identifying mark of the people of God, humble service and submission to one another. In this, His name is proclaimed. In this, He is most glorified. What did Jesus say? 
They will know that you are my people in the way that you love one another. Let brotherly love continue, abide steadfast in our individual lives and in our life together by the grace of Christ purchased for you on the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our good shepherd. Yes, Lord, we thank you that you put under-shepherds in place. We pray that we, the under-shepherds, would be made faithful, that we would pursue your face in all things, that we would submit to your leading through your word and through prayer. We pray that your people would be shepherded by you through us. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to submit to those who are in authority over us. That it would be for our good, for our growth, for our becoming more and more like you. May your name be praised in the ways that leadership, humble servant leadership is carried out in this congregation. May you be glorified in the ways that this congregation submits to that leadership. May you be glorified in the ways that we more and more look like you and submit to you. Make us, remake us in your image. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.